Kim for the week is 594, stanzas one and two. Hymn 594, stanzas one and two. God's own child, I gladly say it. God's own child, I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ. He because I could not pay it, gave my full redemption price. To Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for our baptism into Christ, where we were buried with him through our baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. Grant us this new life, O Lord, that we might live faithfully and joyously as your children in the blessed hope of everlasting life in Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That is the second of the two prayers under the section of baptism for the week a prayer of thanksgiving for the new life that we have in Christ. It utilizes Romans chapter 6, which is quoted in the Catechism for this week. So I'd like to go there first, and then we'll circle back to the verse for the week in the congregation at prayer. And a reminder to you, the extended attention to the congregation at prayer during Sunday morning Bible class this year in addition to our Genesis reflections, is intended to try to help you to stimulate uh, meditation, prayer, devotions at home. So, for example, if you are parents that have academy children, you can 
reread the story, the narrative, that's always the first one, that they heard in chapel for that day. And you're, you're free to also use the second reading. We have been in John now um, for a little over, well, it'll be t- it's two weeks now, and we'll continue in John uh, when we're not celebrating minor festivals. But it, it enables you then to be able to rehearse that reading, talk about, you know, what did pastor talk about in chapel, uh, and to bring that into conversation around the dinner table. Uh, the verse for the week, it gives you opportunity to learn by heart and memorize together. This week, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you rehearse it over the course of the week, you might actually learn it by heart. If you don't have children in the academy and you're homeschooling, again, the narrative for the week, the catechism for the week, the Bible verse for the week, the hymn for the week can become the basis of homeschool family devotions. If you uh, are retired, you have lots of time, maybe, to pray, which people have told me this. Since I'm never retiring, I don't know if I'll ever experience this, but they've told me, you know, it, I can really relax when I am using the congregation at prayer in the sense that I don't have as many pressing obligations. And we are, once again, in the 60 day cycle of praying the Psalms. And so over the course of 60 days, I'm doing that with you. And then you can know that I'm doing that with you. And when you're retired, it may be easier to do it without feeling a sense of being rushed. So the point this year of extended discussion of the congregation at prayer is to help assist you in that and give you opportunity to ask Uh, questions. So let's go, as I said, to the sacrament of holy baptism. It is our third week. The first week on baptism, we had the essence of baptism. It is the true body and blood of our Lord. Excuse me. The essence of baptism. It is not just plain water, but the word of God in and with the water. Jesus' words, go and make disciples, baptizing them. And then we also had that week, the benefit. It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil. And Mark 16 was quoted, whoever believes and is baptized. So those are very great things to work forgiveness, to rescue from death and the devil. And then last week, how can water do these great things? Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things, which is a beautiful anticipation of this third Sunday after the Epiphany, where there's such a strong stress on the word of Christ being the fountain and source of blessings in the water. Certainly Naaman the leper, when he finally had his sinful pride crucified in the Old Testament reading, received then by faith the blessings that were in the water of the Jordan River, and he was washed clean, uh, his flesh like that of a newborn infant. So this week... We continue the third week on baptism with its daily significance, and I'll talk about that with respect to the catechism and the verse for the week. But let's speak it together. It is part four, 
What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So, the, what does it indicate? What does it signify? What does it mean for every day of our lives? It draws attention to the old Adam, which is the sinful nature we have received from Adam, the corruption of our flesh, and the new man uh, of faith, Christ in us. So the old Adam should by daily contrition, contrition is godly sorrow, that the Lord works. Repentance is the faith that turns from any notion of self-reliance to reliance upon Christ. So in the Old Testament reading for today, you have Naaman who had to be crucified. His old nature had to be drowned and die. Prior to that, he was full of self-righteousness, arrogance, and pride. After that, he is humbled in contrition and repentance, fleeing from believing in himself and his standing and his position to trusting in the Lord. So that's daily contrition and repentance. The old Adam should die and be drowned with all sins and evil desires. You might ask the question, how does that take place? So, since you might ask that question, I'll ask it of you. How does that take place? How is the old Adam drowned? How does he die? Yes, Nathaniel. Well, it's, it's begun in baptism, yes. How does it happen every day then after that? Yes, Nathaniel. Forgiveness of sins, confession of sin is the dying and the drowning. And then the next question, how is the new man raised up by the forgiveness of sins? So the, the birthright that we're given in our baptism is actually the privilege to confess our sin, to confess our need. I'm struck by the fact that in the Gospels, you have it again today, people come to Jesus crying out for his help. And those who come to Jesus crying out for his help are believers who have been brought to contrition and repentance. Whether it's the, uh, the leper today who cries out, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean, or the centurion, a Gentile, who cries out to Jesus on behalf of his paralyzed and tormented servant. Uh, you have in that a connection with the epistle I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, like the leper, and also to the Greek, like the centurion. But contrition and repentance, the drowning of the old Adam and the raising up of the new has concrete, uh, practical ways in which that is done. Forgive us our trespasses, confessing our sin, hearing the absolution 
or in our daily prayers, if you're not coming to confession that day, you can hear the absolution in the promises of God's word that you meditate upon. So that's how the old Adam continually is put to death and is drowned and dies. And by the strength and power of Christ's forgiveness, as Nathaniel said, the new man is raised up. And the new nature is strengthened in the battle and struggle with the old Adam. Now, one of the functions of the old Adam and its corruption remaining is that it teaches us reliance not upon ourselves in this life, but reliance upon the grace of God. Okay. Uh, righteousness and purity at the end of that explanation is the righteousness and purity of Christ Jesus. All right, let's go on to the next part. Where is this written? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into Christ, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So we are buried with Christ through baptism into death, into his death. This is repeated elsewhere in the New Testament which then illuminates every other passage that talks about being joined to Christ and being joined to his death and resurrection, even if those passages do not mention the word baptism. Every reference to being united with Christ's death and resurrection is descriptive of baptism. And to live in Christ's death and resurrection is a description of the ongoing life of the Christian, which is characterized, as the Catechism says, by daily contrition and repentance. Okay. So confession, absolution, praying the Lord's Prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, forgive us our trespasses, is all part of the baptismal life. Any, any questions about that? And the two prayers for the week, one, Thanksgiving, uh, one for to live in daily contrition and repentance, and the other Thanksgiving for the new life in Christ. All right, let's take up Galatians 2.20. Ah, Alex. Last, uh, last week we talked about the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. Last week we talked about the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. Oh, thank you. So let me start over. Pastor Bender. Well, we got it. I, I put that up. Go ahead. <laughs> last week we, we talked about the... Um, the, the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, and a big part of that is once saved, always saved. When I hear you speak of baptism, it's very easy for me to conclude that we believe once baptized, always saved. Is sure. that sure. the conclusion? Now, yeah, let, let me um, add a little bit of color to your question. The doctrine of predestination is not false doctrine. The biblical doctrine of predestination is the truth. You are predestined in Christ and so forth. The reformed doctrine of which he speaks is what's called double predestination, that God in eternity decides these folks over here are predestined to salvation. These over here are predestined to damnation. I use those on my right and those on my left to, to distinguish that by illustration, okay? And um, so 
why does that teaching come about by John Calvin? It is an attempt to answer the question, if God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and not all are saved, and salvation, faith in Christ, is God's work, then the solution must be, human reason declares, well then, he hasn't, doesn't will all to be saved, but only those whom he's predestined to salvation, and those whom he's predestined to damnation, he doesn't want them saved. What happens then in the doctrine of double predestination is that the cross of Christ is set aside, and you're quite correct, um, if you are one of the elect, then it really doesn't matter. You're, you're, locked, in. you're locked in. Lock and load, you know, you're going to heaven. Now, how is what this teaching from the Catechism on Baptism different from that? It's different from that because baptism is described as new birth, being born from heaven, being born from God. And the connection that Jesus makes so strongly, like to Nicodemus in John 3, and also in other places like Mark 10 and Matthew 19, um, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it, is comparative to you and your children. Okay? Uh, let's take one of your children, Andrew. First of all, is Andrew the child of both of you? I just want to ask. I have always gone with that assumption. Okay, all right. <laughs> you know, just, just thought I'd ask first, okay? Now, Andrew was born into this familial relationship, okay? Would it be possible for Andrew to renounce his parents and say, I, I, I hate you, I have no regard for you. And like the prodigal son, wander from home. Yes. Right. And that would be a tragic thing. Wandering from home, denying his parents, would he, in that state, benefit from, in that state, from your love and that relationship? He severed himself from it. He severed himself from it. So is he benefiting from it, if, if that were to happen? Now, that hasn't happened, by the way. He was here two Sundays ago, I think. Yeah. Last week, okay. However, it doesn't change the reality that he is your son. Okay? So when we talk about baptism, this is why we don't re-baptize someone who has fallen away from the faith. Okay? Um, the, the, the consolation and assurance and great comfort of baptism, among other things, is this. It gives to us the right and the privilege to return home if we have wandered. Okay? And the three parables that answer that question, is it possible for a baptized Christian to be restored, are the parable of the lost sheep who had belonged to the fold but wandered away. The lost coin, the, the uh, bridal necklace, the coin that was lost, and then she finds the coin and rejoices. And the parable of the prodigal sons, I say because both the young son squandered his inheritance and the older son, though he was at home, 
is like the Christian who has forgotten his identity as a baptized child, that it's rooted in God's gift and God's grace, rather than the fact that he wasn't as horrible as that younger brother. Okay? So those three parables ask, answer the question, is it possible for a baptized Christian who has fallen away to be restored? And the answer is yes. Because baptism does give us a, a right, a privilege, a status to return home if we've fallen away. Doesn't mean that every baptized child does. But that, that, that doesn't change the reality of that baptism, that new birth, even though it's denied. Just as if Andrew were to deny you, it wouldn't, well, it wouldn't change his existence. He wouldn't suddenly stop existing, but he wouldn't be enjoying the benefits of your relationship to him as your parents. Does that help? It does, yeah. Okay. It's a, really, it's a really important question. And that's, that's basically what the hymn of the week, I am baptized into Christ. That, that, that the assurance of baptism is not at all based upon the strength of your piety, the act of your believing, okay? The fact that uh, Steve is more righteous than you because he's here all the time and, you know, you're hit and miss or whatever. You know, it's not based on any of that. You know, the, the purity and the righteousness of baptism in, is based entirely upon Christ. And, and if you were to ask yourself the question, you know, you've got many children in your, in your home. You know, which ones do you love most? Well, I, I mean, the, the real answer is we love all of our children. That doesn't mean that, you know, Johnny doesn't irritate mom and dad maybe more so than, than Mary or something like that. Um, but it doesn't change the fundamental relationship. So Luther talks about being returning to one's baptism if they've fallen away from the faith. Uh, they're not rebaptized. Just like if Andrew were to do that, he doesn't crawl back into his mother's womb to be born again. The John 3 is really born from heaven, better than born again. Okay, good. Uh, with that, then, let's, let's go to Galatians 2.20. It's on the board or in the congregation at prayer. Hopefully I copied it accurately. Let's speak it together. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I, I hope and pray that this verse becomes one that you commit to memory because it is of inestimable comfort in so many ways. Remember who's saying this. This is St. Paul, who had been the former persecutor of the church. I mean, participating in the, leading the effort of persecution that, resulted early on with the death of the likes of Stephen okay, and the imprisonment of many Christians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, I ask you the question, why was Jesus crucified? Pardon me? 
for forgiveness of sin. So, whose sin? So, everything you said is right. Let me push it a little bit. He was crucified because he bore our sin. So what you deserve because of your sin, your weakness, your corruption, Jesus bore. And his crucifixion is atonement, payment for your sin that reconciles you to God. So this is descriptive of the reality, the blessed reality in baptism. I have been crucified with Christ, which means his crucifixion is my crucifixion under the law. His death is my death for sin under the law. Now, I didn't do the doing. He did the doing. Now, he ran the verbs. He did the doing. But that is what I have received, what you have received. I have been crucified with Christ. Notice the tense there. It, it goes back to baptism. I have been crucified with Christ. But it also, it means it has ongoing, continuous reality in my life. It's not like I was crucified with Christ, okay? But I have been crucified with Christ, okay? It is a reality that took place, like for me in May of 1961, but it has durative power today. That's what this uh, particular passage is, is talking about in that first phrase, okay? I have been crucified with Christ. So what he did is mine. What I am was his. What great comfort that is. So here we're talking about death, aren't we, with the word crucified. Oh, that's a bad one. And then it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, this is talking about, just like this is talking about death, this is talking about resurrection. I tried to get confirmation at the symposium this week, but no one wanted to give confirmation. St. Paul in Philippians says, Whatever was to my profit, I consider loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then this phrase, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, my obedience to the law, my fulfillment of the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith, the righteousness of God that comes by faith. And then this, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. And what I wanted to give, get confirmation on was this question. What is the power of the resurrection? Now, if I were to ask you that, what would you say, and maybe I should ask Nathaniel to give his answer again. Nathaniel, what's the power of the resurrection? Do you remember the one answer you gave before? Forgiveness. 
Yes, okay, the forgiveness of sins. This absolutely is the power of the resurrection. Why? Because his death, his crucifixion, made atonement for sin, reconciled us to God. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. St. Paul lived in the power of the forgiveness of sins. That's what raised up that murderous persecutor to an apostle and saint. It was by the power of the forgiveness of sins, the love of Christ, that he was compelled to do what he did as, a, as an apostle. Without the power of the forgiveness of sins, his conscience would have despaired of life itself because of what he had done. Coming to faith in Christ and realizing, what have I done? What have I done? Okay? Now, he enjoyed the fellowship of Christ's suffering also as he was persecuted for proclaiming the very forgiveness of sins in the gospel that he once tried to destroy. Okay? So when St. Paul says here, it is no longer I who live, Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He is talking resurrection language. What does faith do? Faith trusts, it receives what Christ is and what Christ has done. It receives every blessed gift of holy baptism, his death for you, his resurrection for you, and the power of that resurrection is the forgiveness of sins. So when he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, this word flesh is the word sarx, it's not soma uh, in the Greek, the word sarx is flesh, soma is body. It's St. Paul's familiar usage of flesh, not merely to highlight this stuff that is on our skin, but to highlight how this stuff is corrupted by sin, you see. So think about what he's saying, the life which I now live in the flesh. How many of you have completely shed your old nature? How many of you have no longer any struggle with sin? How many of you have no longer any sinful weakness? Some actually teach this, Alex, that, you know, if you're a true Christian, you stop sinning, okay? That's Pastor Christensen, you know, he's, he's a true Christian, he stopped sinning, but no, I'm just teasing. No, because you never make me tell me. So the life which I now live in the flesh, in other words, the life I now live in this struggle with sin and corruption. Let me change the wording. The life I now live in the flesh in this struggle and corruption, I live by faith in my piety. I live by faith in my strength. I live by faith in my works. Oh no, that's not what it says. I live by faith in the Son of God who is a great coach at being holy. No, the Son of God who loved me. He loved me in the flesh. It doesn't mean he loved my sin, but he loved me in the flesh. And he gave himself for me. Here again, it circles right back to the death of Christ upon the cross. Gave himself for me. That's what he did in love for me. Every day as the Christian, the baptized uh, life, the, the strength of the baptized life is the faith which he himself creates, but the faith that 
relies upon the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And, and that's what the hymn for the week, I am baptized into Christ, is, is all about. So this is of great significance as it describes what's going on in the catechism's description of dying to self through contrition and repentance and being raised up by, as Nathaniel said, the forgiveness of sins to new life. Okay? Uh, Susan, you had a question. I got distracted this morning during the confession of sins. Uh, the by your Holy Spirit, increase in us true knowledge of you and of your will and true obedience to your word. Yep. Okay, I guess I heard that for most of my growing up years as, okay, make us obey you so that you can be happy with us. But it says, by your grace. Yep. Which then can get into the whole Catholic thing of God gives you grace so that you can obey him so that. No, well, no, okay, not. don't want to go there. Okay. No. But, but it's talking about the fruit of faith and the fruit of God's grace ministered to you by the Holy Spirit. But is it also talking about knowledge of you, mm -hmm. like you were talking about in Philippians 3? Yes. Knowledge of your will. God's will is not that I depend on myself, right. but that I know what he has done and what he gives. Right, and that... And this true obedience to your still. word isn't obeying the rules. It's true obedience to your word is knowing Christ no, and, and the power of his resurrection. Yes, and, and of course the liturgy there is not denying that obedience includes, you know, not committing murder, adultery, uh, theft, false witness, and so forth. But it's true obedience. That is to say, it is the obedience that flows from the broken and contrite heart of faith that relies upon Jesus. So it's a true obedience that doesn't result in pharisaical self-righteousness and exaltation over others, but true obedience grounded in contrition, repentance, and faith. Another Gelbach wishes to speak. Uh, speaking of the prodigal son from earlier, yep. what the son says when he goes back home, but again, his father doesn't let him say it to the father as well in terms of true obedience. It's like the response of faith, but the forgiveness covers all. I'm not doing a very good job of speaking here. Well, but. I, I'm glad you mentioned, I'm glad you brought us back to the prodigal son again, because when you look at the text of Luke 15, a number of things should be underscored. If the prodigal son had known, like if Andrew had known Jenny and Alec to be wicked, overbearing tyrants in whom there was, he could never please you growing up. That's why he left, you know, let's say. If the prodigal son had known his father to be that kind of man, would he ever have returned home? No. So while repentance in the narrow sense is how the law crushes self-righteousness and pride, there is no repentance in the broad sense where we turn from that to Christ apart from the word of the gospel. 
So in the parable, when he came to himself, which I take in Luke's language, telling Jesus' story, when he came to himself as a baptized child of God or as the son of his father, it's a reflexive, when he came to himself, he realizes, who am I? And it's even reflected in his words, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? He still refers to dad as his father. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? But what he draws attention to is the love of the father, even for servants. So it is as if he were saying, if God loves those servants, how much more me, for I have been born into this relationship. Having said that, he then resolves, I will go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, true. I am not worthy to be called your son, true. But then he says, make me like one of your hired servants. He proposes his own penance. As if to say, I've squandered it, I've squandered your love, therefore that status will never be recovered. Okay? It would be like Andrew coming home, and you'll say, fine, you can work in the business, you can earn your keep, but you're not a son. And that's how, what's, what's so great about the parable of the prodigal son is we find ourselves in the shoes of the younger son at times, or we find ourselves in the shoes of the older son, who didn't, you know, had forgotten about the love and the grace of his father, and therefore he exalted himself. Uh, so a great thing about it is it, it's, it, it shows uh, the struggle in the life we now live in the flesh, even as baptized children. Sometimes as the baptized, you will get, the longer you live, now this may sound depressing to you, the longer you live, the more you have a sense of your own weaknesses. Okay? Um, I mean, I certainly feel that way as a pastor. You know, when I started out as a pastor, I needed nothing, self-sufficient, so I knew how to do it. And now, after 30, what is it? Almost 36 years, 35, going on 36, now I realize how foolish any sort of notion was. Okay. So the ever-present reality of that struggle is so important to know and to believe that you might, through daily contrition and repentance, drown the old Adam with its evil desires and lusts so that by the power of Christ's forgiveness, the new man might come forth and arise. For the life we now live in the flesh, we don't live by faith in ourself or our own piety but in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Okay? Let's speak the verse one more time. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the backbone and foundation of Christian vocation. Um, because 
at the heart of our vocation is not simply our office and the obligations of our office. That casts vocation entirely in the realm of the law. But the strength and at the heart of Christian vocation, father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker, is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we live the weird way we live with respect to those who do not know Christ, the overbearing boss, uh, etc. Okay. I'm going to move to the readings for the week unless you have a, a final comment or question that you'd like to make here. Uh, this, this year in the congregation at prayer, we're making a concerted effort that if there are saints days, we allow two readings on the saints day to be the readings for the day. So we've been in the account of Joseph. Tomorrow, Benjamin returns with his brothers in Egypt. It finally got desperate. Uh, Jacob did not want to send this final son of he and Rachel to Egypt, fearing his loss, just as he had lost Joseph uh, decades earlier. But they're desperate. They're all going to die unless they get relief from the famine. But then we interrupt the story. Tuesday, St. Timothy. Wednesday, the conversion of St. Paul. Thursday, St. Titus. And we don't come back to the story until Friday. Joseph's cup is found in Benjamin's sack. Uh, let the interruption be kind of, um, sort of, symbolic of the fact that this particular story of Joseph took a lot of weeks to unfold. Okay, we'll be ending it soon, but it took a lot of time to unfold. You know, they've been back with Dad for a while. Um, their brother is left in Egypt. They've got to go fetch him. So, anyway... Let that happen. That's why the John, the continuous readings from John are interrupted after Monday, John 7, 14 through 18. Uh, doesn't resume again until uh, Friday. But let's say a few words about the three minor feast days. St. Timothy, pastor and confessor. Let me give you this. This is, uh, this is from the Treasury of Daily Prayer. St. Timothy had Christian believers in his family. His mother, Eunice, was a Christian woman and was the daughter of a Christian woman named Lois. 2 Timothy 1.5. The book of Acts records that St. Paul met Timothy on his second missionary journey and wanted Timothy to continue on with him. I think it would be perhaps better to say that he was catechized by Paul on that uh, second missionary journey. Over time, Timothy became a dear friend and close associate of Paul, uh, a fellow minister of the gospel, to whom Paul entrusted mission work in Greece and Asia Minor. Timothy was also with Paul in Rome. Now let me add a little bit more 
to what the treasury of daily prayer says. Timothy was, um, his, his father was not a believer. He was. Timothy was circumcised. He lived in the, in the hope and expectation of the Jews for the Messiah. And so the Old Testament scriptures that his mother and grandmother taught him made him, according to Paul, wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, Jesus who is the Christ. So he is kind of an example of one of the Jewish uh, ministers who is converted and catechized by Paul, as opposed to Titus coming up on Thursday of this week. But Timothy was an envoy, quite often, of the Apostle Paul being left behind or sent to cities where congregations who had been founded by Paul were established to further catechize not just the whole congregation there, but to further catechize the ministers that were ordained in those congregations uh, so that they could be faithful in what they were doing. So in a lot of ways, Timothy brought seminary education uh, to those villages, cities, and towns of Asia Minor and Greece. According to tradition, after Paul's death, Timothy went to Ephesus, where he served as bishop and was martyred around A.D. 97. Timothy is best remembered as a faithful companion of Paul who rendered great service among the Gentile churches. So if you want to look up in your Lutheran service book, hymn 517, stanza 11 is the stanza for Timothy. What I like about these stanzas is that we sang some of them during Advent, as you might remember. They do a nice job of highlighting aspects of the particular saint's ministry life but doing so, always giving glory to Christ. So, all praise for faithful pastors who preached and taught your word. For Timothy and Titus, true servants of their Lord. Lord, help your pastors nourish the souls within their care so that your church may flourish and all your blessings share. Now, that uh, stanza includes not only Timothy, but also Titus. So I'll skip to Titus next, or over the conversion of Paul. I'll come back to that at the end. January 26th, Thursday, is Titus. Now, Titus was a Greek, as opposed to Timothy, who was Jewish. And uh, so the, um, the commentary for the day in the Treasury for Daily Prayer reads, St. Titus, like Timothy with whom he is often associated, was a friend and co-worker of St. Paul. Titus was a Gentile, perhaps a native of Antioch. That would have been um, Syrian Antioch, which is the larger city. You know, if you're looking at the Mediterranean Sea, it's up in the northeast corner there. Uh, that's where uh, this large church of Jew and Gentile uh, was where Barnabas fetched Paul from Tarsus. He had been there for like a decade, brings him down to Antioch to continue the work. And then from there, 
they launched the, the missionary journeys of Paul. So Titus was likely from Syrian uh, Antioch, who accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem when they brought assistance to the Christians in Judea during the famine. That was offerings and mercy work to support the poor church down there. It is not known if he accompanied Paul on his first or second missionary journeys, but Titus was with him on the third one when he helped reconcile the Corinthians to Paul, 2 Corinthians 7, and assisted with the collection for the church in Jerusalem all around uh, Asia Minor and particularly Greece, then Macedonian Greece. It was probably on the return to Jerusalem that Paul left Titus in Crete. Titus 1, 4 and 5 says, put in order the things that I sent you there to do. Appoint pastors in every city. Uh, that had not been uh, sufficiently done. Afterward, he is found working in Dalmatia, 2 Timothy 4.10. According to tradition, Titus returned to Crete, where he served as bishop until he died in about A.D. 96. So in addition to stanza 11 of 517, you also have, uh, from the hymnal, you have collects on both of those days. And it is a great week of remembering the ministry. When you think of Timothy and Titus, they seem to be men who are like the catechism, above reproach. You know, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and so forth. But sandwiched in between those two is the conversion of Saul. And obviously, he was chosen to be an apostle and a Christian because he had no sin and was the most devout and righteous person that had ever lived. Well, that's nonsense. So, the commentary for the conversion of St. Paul, and the color is white, by the way, for all three of these days, and uh, the reason for that is because it is highlighting the ministry and the royal robes of Christ's righteousness that covers his ministers. St. Paul's life-changing experience on the road to Damascus is related three times in the book of Acts. Acts 9, 1 through 9, the first telling of it where it actually happens, so Luke records it there. Acts 22, 6 through 11, where Paul, for the first time, speaks about it, and then Acts 26, 12 through 18. The Acts 22, the, the earlier one where Paul speaks of it, he's in the temple, and he is recounting how, though he had been a persecutor of the church, Christ came to him on the road to Damascus, his conversion. That results in a near riot where they almost pull him apart like piranhas in a, in a fish tank, you know. And then he is, um, he is protected by the soldiers there. In Acts 26 is where he gives his uh, personal testimony, you might say, before those rulers charged with judging him. So as an arch enemy of Christians, Saul of Tarsus set out for Damascus to arrest and bring believers to Jerusalem for trial. 
While on the way, he saw blinding light and heard the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In Damascus, where Saul was brought after being blinded, a disciple named Ananias, not to be confused with Sapphira's husband earlier on in chapter 5, this Ananias was directed by the Lord in a vision to go to Saul to restore his sight. Quoting from Acts, the Lord told Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Close quote. And of course, Ananias was not immediately eager to do this. Lord, I have heard much about this man and how he is responsible for the persecution of Christians. After receiving his sight, Saul was baptized and went on to become known as Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. So the hymn stanza, verse 12 for that day from LSB 517, Praise for the light from heaven and for the voice of awe. Praise for the glorious vision the persecutor saw. O Lord, for Paul's conversion, we bless your name today. Come shine within our darkness and guide us on our way. So there is another feast day for St. Peter and St. Paul. There the color is red, um, kind of highlighting their martyrdoms, if you will. But here... The commemoration is about the conversion of a hard-hearted sinner to faith in Christ. And really, that's the, that's the ground of, um, or commonality, I guess you'd say, between Timothy, the conversion of Paul, and Titus, is by the grace of God, they were converted to faith in Christ and confessed the name of Jesus. So all three colleagues for those days are here, and there's two readings for each day, um, Typically, whenever possible, the first reading is always a narrative that, uh, that highlights something that God worked through them. Okay, so I want you to see that. Any, um, any questions about, about those or anything from the congregation at prayer for the week? Susan. I think the, when you said this is an interruption in the Joseph story. Yes. It doesn't sound so much like an interruption. It's yes. uh, the ministry of the forgiveness of sins and the promises of God. Yeah, so um, what binds all together in the fellowship of faith are not the accomplishments of the saints in their strength, but rather the gospel of the forgiveness of sins in Christ, which none of us deserve, but which we receive and rejoice to believe, to teach, to confess, and to live by in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. So these saints' days, what characterizes you know, our observance compared to some others would be what we're focusing on and should focus on is what God did, what our Lord Jesus did by his grace in the lives of those whom we commemorate. So, in a very real sense, it takes us back to this. Timothy and Titus and Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. That would be their confession. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And in the narrative of the New Testament, you see it. And the life which I now live in the flesh, 
with all of its struggles. And we think of Paul's famous axiom, the good that I would, I don't do. That which I would not is the very thing that I do. That's not justification for his sin, but what it is is the confession that the life I now live in the flesh, I must live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay? So a lot going on. As I said, going over in greater detail the congregation at prayer over this week is, is intended to be an encouragement for you to take up as, as much or as little as you are able in your daily life. Okay? And don't worry, we'll get back to some Genesis material. It's, it's not going anywhere. Okay. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all.